Section 4 of The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kristen Hand. The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel by Thomas Erskine. Chapter 4. Consideration of some passages of Scripture referring to the subject. But, it may be asked, are there not many passages in the Scriptures which seem decidedly to teach that forgiveness is bestowed only on those who believe in Jesus Christ? Let us examine some of these. Before doing so, however, let us consider attentively the general declaration contained in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19, 20, 21. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses. I ought to observe that here, as indeed always in Scripture, God is spoken of as reconciling, never as being reconciled. To reconcile is the act of an injured party who forgives. To be reconciled is the condition of one who has committed an offense and has obtained forgiveness. Footnote Thus our Lord says, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, hath ground of complaint against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, obtain his forgiveness, and then come and offer thy gift. End footnote. In this passage, God is represented as declaring a purpose of forgiveness to every individual in the world, as breathing out forgiveness to all, not imputing to men their trespasses, in order that the world might be reconciled to himself. Immediately after the fall, he had made known his purpose of restoring the lost race through the instrumentality of the woman's seed. In the fullness of time, the Deliverer came forth, and was declared to be no less than the only begotten of the Father, the manifestation and expression of his nature, full of grace and truth. Christ is thus not only the proof and pledge of divine love, but is also the appropriate organ through which that love may be dispensed to sinners. God manifested in Christ, therefore, is God revealed as the holy and gracious forgiver of sins. This is his attitude. All who see him in this attitude must believe in his forgiving love. But sin hides the forgiving character of God from us. The accusations of conscience raise a cloud between God and the sinner. The forgiving love of God being manifested in the life and death of Christ declares itself to be a consuming fire to evil, and thus no heart which does not sympathize with the threatened destruction of evil can possibly embrace cordiality, or enjoy fully the forgiveness of the gospel. So long, therefore, as a man chooses to keep his sin, so long he refuses to allow the forgiving love of God to enter his heart. In such circumstances, although God remains the same, although he is still, as Luther calls him, the merciful forgiver of the sins of all men, yet the man can have no real peace, no true sense of forgiving love. And if he continues in this state through eternity, he must through eternity be a child of wrath, abiding in outer darkness. Therefore, when the light of God's reconciling countenance is first perceived shining through these veils and clouds and obstacles, although the forgiving love has been always the same, 
Yet the man may be said to be then first pardoned because he then first admits or accepts pardon. When one man loves another, that other is loved, whether he accepts the love bestowed on him or not. In like manner, when God in Christ forgives the world, the world is forgiven, whether it accepts the pardon or not. But as in the first case, the refuser of human kindness receives no joy and no benefit from it, though it has been bestowed, so in the second case, those who understand not or refuse to accept God's pardon receive no joy, no benefit from it, though it also has been bestowed. When the Savior came into the world, St. John tells us, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons of God, even to them who believed in his name. He came to the world, and pardon was and is proclaimed in him. Those who receive him receive the pardon in him. Those who do not receive him do not receive the pardon. See also 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Let us now proceed to examine some of the passages which appear to represent pardon as a gift bestowed upon believing, or upon being baptized. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Leave therefore your false notions of God, and be converted to that true view of his character, which blots out sin and assures of the forgiveness of sin, and thereby delivers from its power, that your sins may be found to be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come, etc. Or, according to Schleusner, especially now that the times of refreshing have come from the presence of the Lord, and that he hath sent Jesus Christ, who was before promised by the prophets. That this interpretation of the latter clause is correct appears to me quite evident from the fact that it is the first and not the second coming of our Lord which is here referred to, for his second coming is separately mentioned in the 21st verse. To him give all the prophets witness, that whosoever believeth in him shall through his name receive the remission of sins. The word receive here has the same sense that it has in John chapter 1 verse 12, which has already been quoted. He came to his own and his own received him not, or accepted him not. He had come to them whether they received him or not, and so had the remission of sin. But those only who believed in his true character, viz., that he had come as a destroyer of the works of the devil, and as thus being a propitiation for the sins of the world, would in that very character of him read and receive their own forgiveness. The next passage, which I quote, is still more distinct on the point. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is proclaimed unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Here the forgiveness is declared to be universal, while the justification is limited to those who believe the proclamation. That is, they only who receive the unspeakable gift are justified. They only have their consciences purged of guilt and are delivered from the burden of unpardoned sin. And I cannot but think that Abraham's justification was of the same kind. In Genesis chapter 12, we read that God said to him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. 
Relying on this promise, Abraham went forth as a stranger and pilgrim towards the land of promise. But his faith was still very imperfect, for we find that when God appeared to him some time after and said to him, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward, his only answer was, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. On this God renews the promise. He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said, So shall thy seed be. And then it is added, He believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now if we suppose that God rewarded the greatness of Abraham's faith by imputing to him righteousness, then we must also suppose that his acceptance is no more of grace but of debt. And if we decline this interpretation as being contrary to the whole tenor of the gospel and to the express commentary of St. Paul on the subject, Romans chapter 4, what other explanation can we adopt but that which has been suggested, viz., that from the greatness of God's kindness manifested in his promises to him, he had learned to look up to God with filial confidence, and that God declared this state of filial confidence to be what he regards as the righteousness of man? We shall now consider some passages of a different kind, such as, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And, He that believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. With regard to such passages, I have to observe that salvation and eternal life are things quite different from pardon, just as a medicine is different from the health which is produced by its application. Salvation is the healing of spiritual disease, and eternal life is the communication of the life of God to the soul. These blessings are brought to man by the knowledge of God entering into him, and abiding in him, and giving him a participation in the divine nature. The saving knowledge of God is the knowledge of him as revealed in Christ, the forgiver of sin, and it can only enter into him by being believed. This doctrine, then, of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ is the medicine and nourishment of the soul. Faith is taking this medicine and feeding on this nourishment. Salvation, sanctification, heaven, eternal life are different names for the spiritual health and strength and enjoyment which are the blessed effect of receiving this spiritual medicine and this spiritual nourishment. Therefore, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved is not a nostrum nor a magical amulet, but a declaration of the way to obtain spiritual health. The Philippian jailer had been arrested by the voice of Paul when in the very act of plunging into eternity. He now looked back on what had happened with the feelings of a man who in the morning contemplates the full extent of a danger through which he has passed unconsciously during the night. He lived the danger over again and felt the fear. His arm had been stopped and his life saved by the voice of the man whom he had thrust into the inner prison. He must have known that it was for preaching a new religion that these prisoners, after having had many stripes laid upon them, had been committed to him by the magistrates with a special charge of safe custody, and he knew that he had not softened his charge in the execution of it. It was a remarkable night. Nature, or the God of nature, seemed to take part with the prisoners and to protest against the wrong done to them. There was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. He was awakened by the commotion, and when about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners were fled, he was saved by St. Paul's assurance that they were all there. 
As his agitated mind hastily contemplated and compared these striking things, he seems to have been led to connect them all with the new God whose claims and authority these men had been asserting. Under these impressions, he came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then it is added, They spake unto him the word of the Lord. That is, they explained to him the gospel. They told him who Jesus Christ was, and for what he had come into this world. This was absolutely necessary. For these words, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, however full of meaning to one who knows the gospel, yet if spoken alone and without a commentary, must have been absolutely unintelligible to a Macedonian jailer who knew nothing at all about Jesus Christ. Pressed by his fears, he might have answered to such an address, I will believe anything. But would this have been pleasing to him who desires reasonable service? Or could the jailer have been enlightened or benefited in any way by such a faith, or rather such superstitious credulity? Paul must have told him that the God of heaven and earth, the Holy One, who cannot look upon iniquity, yet looks with a father's love on this lost world, yea, that he has so loved them as to give his son to die for them, that Jesus Christ is this son, the image of the invisible God, the manifestation of his holy love, and that through him a full and free forgiveness is proclaimed to every man, and access to God as to a loving father and the hearer of prayer is laid open to every man. We may suppose the jailer then asking, but is there anything that I have to do in order to entitle me to a participation in these privileges and blessings? And Paul answers, no, nothing. All you have to do is immediately to use them and enjoy them. If you believe this history of God's love, you will not doubt of his forgiveness to yourself. You will know that wherever you are, you have an almighty friend who will never leave you and never forsake you. You will ask of him and he will give you living water, which will bathe your heart with gladness and purify you even as he is pure. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I think that much obscurity has arisen from considering these words, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, as containing in themselves a statement of the gospel. This remark may be thought hypercritical, but I am persuaded of its importance. Only consider, if the gospel really consists in this proclamation, then to believe the gospel is to believe that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Well, one may say, I believe that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, but then another question arises, do I myself believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, I am saved. If not, I am not saved. Then comes a doubt. Have I any evidence of the sincerity of my faith? Have my actings proved it? Have I not been unfaithful to my light? It is quite clear that the mind cannot find firm footing in this way. It is an unravelable perplexity. But suppose the result of the inquiry to be, yes, I am sure that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that I say that drawing his hope from the fact of his faith, he is as far from the spirit of the gospel as the man who rests his hope on his alms deeds. Whenever anything in myself is the source of my comfort, I am sure that I am drawing from an empty cistern. It is not in the nature of things that I should be able to draw peace or strength or holiness from knowing that I believe a fact, however true and important that fact may be. The fact itself may be a comfort to me, but not my knowing that I believe it. The gospel is not, he that believeth shall be saved, but 
be it known unto you, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Let the reader thoughtfully compare these two statements and judge between them. If the first be true, then the gospel consists simply in a premium to faith. If the second, then it consists in a manifestation of the unutterable love of God to man. In the first case, the belief is that a promise has been made to faith, and therefore none can draw comfort from it except those who know they have the true faith. In the second case, the belief is that God forgives sinners and through Christ announces this to sinners, and this belief will give comfort to all who know that they are sinners and desire deliverance from sin. I hope that I have made my meaning clear, for the error which I am opposing seems to me very general and a great source of disquietude. There are many who, when seeking for peace, inquire rather, have I believed, than what is there to be believed? Has God indeed forgiven the sins of the whole world? Yet surely this is the question, and blessed be God, the answer rests on the unchangeableness of God, and does not vacillate according to the high or low spirits of a weak mortal. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. This is his name forever. And they who know his name will put their trust in him, for he never faileth them that seek him. This name of God is the strong tower into which the righteous fleeth and is safe. Reader, art thou in this strong tower? How wouldst thou feel if it were now said to thee by a voice which thou couldst not mistake nor gainsay, This night thy soul shall be required of thee? O my brother, thy God loveth thee and hath given his Son for thee, so unquenchable is his love. He hath said, Look unto me and be saved. Come unto me, and I will give thee rest. The love from which these gifts and promises and words of kindness flow is the strong tower. Wilt thou not flee into it? It is the one thing needful. That tower is the secret place of the Most High, the shadow of the Almighty. If thou art abiding in it, although thou hast no earthly friend, nor refuge, nor comfort, yet thou art safe, for nothing can separate thee from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And even if thou hast hitherto received the grace of God in vain, that grace is still lying at thy door, and begging for admittance. Fear not, therefore. Open thy mouth wide, and he will fill it. And let no one be alarmed by hearing that it is the righteous who flee into this tower, as if they must become righteous before they can have a right to flee into it. The sinner is invited to flee into this strong tower, and he becomes righteous in doing so. This is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is not given as a premium for knowing God. The knowledge of God as revealed in Christ is eternal life. God is light, and the knowledge of God is a ray of that light, and the soul into which it enters becomes a partaker of the divine nature. We may have an atheistical knowledge of Christianity, as I have before observed. That is, we may receive its doctrines, without receiving the God of the doctrines, just as the philosophers of this world receive the doctrines of natural science, without thinking of or receiving the God of nature, or as men are continually receiving the events of life, without receiving the God who manifests himself in them. And therefore it is most necessary to bear continually on our minds that it is God with whom we have to do, and not a science. The doctrines of revelation are the manifestations of that ever-present Almighty God, in whose hand our breath is, and whose are all our ways. 
They are lights to guide us back to God, our long-lost Heavenly Father. And if they serve not this purpose, they serve no purpose. They are the channels through which His Spirit, which is our life, may be received into the heart. And if they bring not this Spirit, they do nothing. End of section 4